The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. So early in the session, where the um, silence is starting to thicken like custard, <laughs> and hopefully our faith and trust in Buddha nature, our own, that is, is also starting to thicken. How does one accomplish Buddhahood? And whether that's exactly how you would express your intention for being here or not, um, probably we can agree that that's like one way that someone's expressed it and that's been handed down to accomplish Buddhahood, to realize our true nature. How? How do we do this? to realize our wholeness, our non-separation, our inherent perfection, our body, heart, and mind, this one, this one, this one now, as a manifestation of oneness. How? Machig Labdran said, One's conventional mind is totally abandoned. Buddhahood is no other than that. In the Platform Sutra, Huineng preaches, as soon as we know the essence of mind, we arrive immediately at the Buddha stage. Our particular school, the Zen tradition, says this can be um, realized within this lifetime and that, um, you know, Zen is referred to as the sudden teaching. Not because suddenly (laughs) we're enlightened. That's a common misconception, but it doesn't take long to realize this is not going to be all that sudden. (laughs) It takes a little while but because um, we don't have to create anything. Practice isn't about like finally like putting together your Buddha nature and like getting it. It's um, your Buddha nature is already present and complete. So it's just a matter of recognition and insight. And this is now Anytime we start to insert the question, how long is this going to take? We are asking for trouble. But that being said, I thought it might be good to consider someone who was extremely fast to see if we might learn from her example. 
So who can realize Buddha nature so quickly in the space of an instant? This question is asked in the Lotus Sutra by Bodhisattva accumulated wisdom. Asked of Manjushri, who has just come back from preaching the Dharma, the Lotus Sutra in the Naga kingdom at the bottom of the sea. And Manjushri says, well, there is someone who can realize Buddha nature extremely fast. It's the dragon king's daughter, the dragon princess, the dragon girl. She's just eight years old, but she's quite an adept. And she can realize Buddhahood fast, fast as a mall. Now, often when people talk about this story in the Lotus Sutra, and when scholars that I've looked at write about it, there is quite an emphasis on how the dragon girl is a demonstration of how someone, thanks to the profound teachings of the Lotus Sutra, in spite of particular barriers or unfavorable conditions, is still able to realize their Buddha nature. But I would like to invert that and wonder if perhaps it is because the dragon girl is only eight and part serpent and a girl that she is able to realize Buddhahood so quickly. Now at the outset, just to acknowledge that, of course, at the depths, the dragon girl's identity is empty, just like yours is, and just like mine is, meaning it's not fixed, it's not inherent, it's just causes and conditions that made her who she is, and that who is changing moment by moment. Same as me, same as you. And at the same time, we say two arrows meeting in midair. So right with this empty, absolute, in uh, Buddha nature quality, she is also manifesting as an eight-year-old Naga. So Maceg Labdron, just to go back to that very, very pithy couple of lines, once conventional mind is totally abandoned, Buddhahood is no other than that. You know, Maceg Labdron is a um, 11th century Tibetan yogini, so she's a contemporary of um, Milarepa. Milarepa was 15 years old when she was born. And um, she's believed to be a reincarnation of Yeshe Sogyal. And she's the founder of Chud, which is a particular lineage and practice within um, Tibetan Buddhism of cutting through our delusive thinking. And so in this teaching, which is her last instruction, um, given at the end of a long life devoted to the Dharma, 
she has a section where she's kind of um, pointing to uh, trying to find a way, as so many ancient masters struggled with. I guess that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what's handed down is the struggle, trying to find a way to express what um, is really beyond language. And so, as happens again and again throughout the Dharma, she's like trying to negate, you know, using negation to be like, not this, not this, not this, just like we hear in the Heart Sutra. And why is this a potent teaching? Well, because our mind is constantly going this, 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 I, me, mine, Buddha nature, this. So the teachers try to say, okay, no, not that, not that, not that, not that, not that, with the hope, mu, by the way, not that, with the hope that, you know, as you're chucking stuff behind you, no, 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 maybe the space opens up and you can encounter, like, (laughs) so she says, um, She has this section. Once discursive thoughts are totally abandoned, dharmakaya is no other than that. Once the five poisons are totally abandoned, the five wisdoms are no other than that. Once the three poisons are totally abandoned, the three kayas are no other than that. Once conventional mind is totally abandoned, Buddhahood is no other than that. Once samsara is totally abandoned, nirvana is no other than that. Once mental agitation is totally abandoned, skillful means are no other than that. So, not creating, just abandoning conventional mind, just abandoning samsara, just releasing the grasping. Qingzhi, who was a 7th century Chinese monk and the, um, compiled a, a collection of um, the early Zen ancestor biographies, wrote that that collection is called Masters of the Lanka. And in the introduction, he says, the true essence of reality is right here in the midst of samsara. If we look closely at samsara, we can see that it is nothing more than repeated acts of grasping. Releasing our grasping and all the forms of our grasping. So we have a front row seat in Zazen to all the forms, or a good chunk of them, of our grasping. The knowing mind, the conceptual mind, using thoughts, ideas, opinions, stories, concepts. The dualistic mind, self, other. Now, then, before, later, grasping. So, to release this grasping, the dragon girl seemed to have some special gift. She didn't need to do session year after year after year. Somehow Manjushri gave her some turning words and she dropped it. 
It's quite wonderful in the um, Lotus Sutra passage. The scene is that Manjushri has come from, from teaching the Nagas. So the Nagas are these serpent beings. And um, Buddhism sort of imported the Nagas from, from Hinduism and the Vedic tradition, where the Nagas were these um, serpent beings, sometimes depicted as like half human, like human on top, and then like a serpentine lower part. Um, other times depicted as human, but like up, up close with the serpents. So like, you know, serpents around them. <laughs> Riding serpents, this kind of thing. You, you take your pick. <laughs> but I like to picture her green, like Tara, with like uh, deep, deep stormy ocean blue hair that's a little bit tangled. <laughs> so... Um, Manjushri's back from this, and then, you know, uh, he's, he's, Buddha introduces him to um, Bodhisattva accumulated wisdom, and they're kind of having a little bit of Bodhisattva chit-chat, where accumulated wisdom is like, so, like, how many beings did you convert down there in the depths of the ocean? And Manjushri's like, oh, so, so many, just wait. And they all start appearing up out of the ocean, like hovering on lotus blossoms. And um, accumulated wisdom says, okay, well, so can, is there anyone who can realize Buddhahood quite, quite fast? And um, just on hearing this teaching, and, and Manjushri says, well, actually, yes, the, the daughter of the, the dragon king. Um, and uh, accumulated wisdom, Bodhisattva, is like, really? Like, wow, I mean, like the Buddha, it took him like lifetimes. He went around and around and around. And like, finally, he realized Buddhahood. And you're telling me this eight-year-old girl can do it that quick? And as Manjushri is about to answer, who appears on the scene? The dragon girl. And there's this amazing image that I found of this um, 12th century Japanese um, reproduction of the Lotus Sutra that has this like illustration at the start of the chapter. Uh, um, it's the Devadatta chapter it's referred to because that story comes first. Um, this illustration of the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas like sitting around and then like whoo, coming up from the um, ocean, you can see like the sea and the foam and you can see like her retinue is um, the dragon girl. So she just like appears on the scene as they're talking about her. And first she pays um, homage to the Buddha. And, um, and then Shariputra, who is a little bit of a fall guy in the Lotus Sutra, is like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so, little dragon girl. I mean, like, first of all, you're a girl and girls can't realize Buddhahood and like, and she's, she's un, un, um, undeterred, and um, she, she takes a priceless jewel, which presumably she brought for the occasion, and offers it to the Buddha, and the Buddha accepts it. And this eight-year-old dragon girl says, did you see how quickly I just gave the Buddha that jewel? Saucy, I like that. <laughs> And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. She's like, that was pretty quick, wasn't it? 
And everyone's like, yeah, that was, that was quick. I mean, that was just like, it was like you gave it to him, he took it. Yeah, it was very quick. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to turn into a Buddha quicker than that. Now, here's a little wrinkle in the story, friends. Here's the part where the conventional mind inserted itself into this sutra. So in the sutra, it says, first the dragon girl turns into a male. We're going to just take that part out and know it for what it is. It's patriarchy. It's not the Dharma. It's not a teaching on women and Buddhahood. It's just patriarchy. So we don't need to take too much time. We'll just put it over here. And by the way, I am not alone in this. So there is, I discovered, I don't know it intimately at all. I only know it from, from a paper that I found. Um, but there is a paper, uh, a sutra, that's considered an apocryphal sutra. So in other words, a sutra that wasn't, it's, it's, it's quite clear it wasn't like the Buddha's original teaching. It was written many years later. This um, ninth century Japan apocryphal sutra called um, Transforming Women into Buddhas. The Sutra on Transforming Women into Buddhas. And in this sutra, it says, actually, the fact that a woman has a female body and can have children and has birthed virtually all the Buddhas means she's perfectly equipped to be enlightened. And one thing that's kind of interesting is apparently in, um, in, in, in the original language, it's, so it was a Japanese written Sutra. In the original language, the word that they use for um, transforming tenyo, tenyo, is the same word that is typically used again and again to talk about the female transforming to the male before she becomes Buddha. So they're sort of being like, yeah, uh-uh, no. No. We're going to use the same word, but she's going right from female to Buddha female Buddha. And so this sutra, they're not sure the authorship. This scholar supposed that it might be um, written by a lay, lay person and actually used very widely in lay circles as a way of um, copying the sutra, dedicating the merit of the sutra to ensure that the women in your life had the good merit to attain Buddhahood. It was used in that way. So you would copy it and dedicate that merit to your mother or your sister or your lover or your friend or your daughter. So in any event, the dragon girl transforms into a Buddha right before their eyes. And um, just the, you know, the platform sutra has that, that, that phrase, as soon as we know the essence of mind, we arrive immediately at the Buddhist stage. So the dragon girl somehow has abandoned conventional mind, has realized the essence, has, we could think of her as like a um, archetype, an archetype of prajna that insight into emptiness. 
So you can take a moment and think of, do you know any eight-year-old girls? So we can just tap into that archetypal energy. Maybe you live with one or raised one. Maybe you grew up with one. Maybe you were one. And all of us have an eight-year-old girl inside us. That's how archetypes work. So I think of eight-year-old girl archetype, and I think like fierce and also still tender. Fearless, courageous, and like so gentle. At home in their bodies, at ease with their feelings, confident. It's pre-adolescent, right? Before things get really complicated and the sort of like gender machine really starts to squeeze the life out of everyone. And um, I was reading in a book um, called Grace and Dying, or Grace in Dying, anyway, the, um, the author has a section where she's sort of tracing the evolution of um, dualistic mind as a way of um, building the framework for what she's going to do later, which is talk about how death lets us release that dualistic mind. Um, and so she, she's using research by like Ken Wilber and others, but his is the name that I recognized, that talks about how, you know, the first, when, when we're an infant sort of um, emerging, we, we, the first duality is self and other. And um, in early childhood, we start to have a sense of like being and non-being and life and death. And then um, four to eight, they said, um, this is like mind and body. We start to make that split. So eight is an interesting piece there. And then adolescence is where like the internal dialogue kicks in. Oh my God, don't you remember? Yes, it's been forever. So she does not have that yet, our archetypal dragon girl. She's not telling herself all these stories about how she's good enough or not good enough or what she can and can't do, right? Let's go with that. That's part of her um, skill or um, capacity or gift or an attribute. Because when we think about our own... um, mind in zazen and how much we are having to work with that internal dialogue is quite intense. (laughs) Yes. And um, she's not so bound up in her, you know, that internal dialogue, so much of it is building our identity. So she's not so bound up in her identity in that way. She's not so committed to it. Not so threatened by like feeling what she's feeling or having the full range of her experience. And really, this would be true for for any little eight-year-old child of any gender. 
But I do like to underscore the um, girl aspect. One, just because it just puts a few more beads in that side of the... And um, also because, um, you know, we are conditioned. And there may be ways in which her conditioning as a girl served her at this juncture. That passage um, in the Bible, truly, I tell you, unless you turn and become as little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is this capacity for present moment awareness in this dragon girl. Uh, A capacity to not know. And if you think back to when you were eight, however you identify, can you touch some of that eight-year-old with like big questions who could like get lost in a game, right? Playing and hours pass and it's time for supper and where did the time go? Releasing expectations, not living in our thoughts. And then she's a Naga. So she's so intimate with that ocean. When the sun filters down through the depths and touches the sandy bottom, can't you just see her playing, skipping, in the puddles of light. When the kelp forest starts to sway, when the swells begin moving with the tides and currents, she sways too. And at night, when the ocean is completely dark and she wakes up, Does she swim to the surface and poke her head out and look up at the arc of the sky? Just with her experience, not judging, not measuring, not looking for something better, not waiting for this to go away. That conventional mind doesn't take much, doesn't take much to drop it off. And then what does the dragon girl see? How do we practice this way? You already know. I'm not about to reveal some big secret. (laughs) You already know. We see our conventional mind. We have to make the space to take that in. 
So what does it look like? I was telling someone how often the first day of session for me is a lot of negativity. Mm. I'm so over it, and yet there it is. There it is. We're not in control. And our karma creates mind states. Don't fight. Don't fight. That's just more aggression. You have to make room. More aggression is conventional mind. Making space is abandoning samsara. There's this very interesting, well, I found it helpful passage that I just read from another book on dying. Doing my, doing my homework. <laughs> um, called, There's More to Dying Than Death, a Buddhist perspective. And this is by Lama Shenpen Hukam, who is a, um, a Western teacher. She's uh, English, and she studied with quite a number of Tibetan, Tibetan masters. And um, she, she has this quite nice section um, called How Meditation Helps Us Understand Death, but it also helps us understand life. So, um, so she talks about how... Um, an essential aspect of meditation, once we've received the instruction, is that um, we're asked to, you know, use use our breath or some other object of focus to uh, tether our awareness, and then we are going to notice um, that our uh, attention wanders off, and that um, the practice, of course, as we know is to again and again come back and to notice our direct experience. We cannot help but notice how we get caught up in one thought after another. Some of these may be happy thoughts about seemingly useful subjects. Some are likely to be unhappy thoughts of anger or pain, but there are definitely a lot of thoughts appearing. As we become accustomed to this process, we can start to relax and wonder, what is it all about? What are thoughts? And what is this process of getting lost in them? We see that each thought that arises is like a gate inviting us to go through into its world. I thought that was such a helpful way of putting it. There is usually a feeling associated with the thought that catches our interest. The feeling hooks us, and if we are not alert enough or determined enough, we pass through that gate and find ourselves simultaneously entering and creating the world that the thought has opened to us. That thought world has its own storyline of the past and future, its own value system, its own flavor and mood, It has its own story of who we are, and we find ourselves identifying with that. We have taken birth in it. 
At any moment, we can choose to step out of that world, to die to it, and return to the breath. But it is surprisingly difficult. (laughs) Having been born into that world, it is quite a wrench to pull ourselves out. It is like a mini death. She goes on to talk about when we do decide and, and, and make a move to bring ourselves back. It is very hard to say what exactly we do at that moment. It is as if we let ourselves die to that thought world. As we do so, we can choose to notice thoughts to be thoughts <laughs> and not get caught up again no matter how many more thought worlds arise. Thoughts are just thoughts. We choose. We choose. So if we choose not to go through, not to enter, or once enter, choose to put it down. Very hard, she says, to know exactly what it is we do at that moment. Releasing the grasp, right? No one can just tell you how to do that. We learn inside how to do that. We develop our capacity to do that. In the Platform Sutra, Huineng says, I thought there was an I who sees and hears. Conventional mind. Dragon Girl saw through that. You see, in samsara there is so much pain. And even if we're having an okay time right now, other people are really suffering. So it's not casual. To realize Buddha is not casual. To sit session and have this opportunity is rare, is precious, is important is medicine, is completely worth tapping in to your own aspiration, your own faith and trust, your own best sense of how to practice, and engaging that Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.